Good evening. My name is Emily Duffy, and on behalf of the Catholic Information Center, it's my pleasure to welcome you here this evening, both those of you who are joining in person and those who are joining through Facebook Live. Can art help us discover whether it is easier to live a moral life with or without God? Tonight, Mary Everstadt will be addressing that very question as she discusses the stage adoption of her novel, The Loser Letters, a story that chronicles the conversion of a young woman from faith to atheism. The show was directed and adapted by Jeffrey Fisk, who also directed the Screwtape Letters. I encourage everyone to get their tickets to the Loser Letters. The show runs September 29th through October 9th at the Catholic University of America. In addition to the Loser Letters, Mary Eberstadt is author of several influential works of nonfiction, including It's Dangerous to Believe, How the West Really Lost God, Adam and Eve After the Pill, and Home Alone in America. Please join me in welcoming Mary Eberstadt. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. Uh, it's wonderful, as always, to be at the CIC. I miss Father Arnie here tonight. Uh, it's very uh, fitting to be here this evening because the second book talk I ever gave about the novel The Loser Letters was right here. And there's a backstory there because Father Arnie invited me to talk about the book. And the night before, I was talking about it at the American Enterprise Institute, and Father Arnie came. So I said, you know, it's really nice that you invited me to the CIC, but understand that you're going to be hearing exactly the same talk that I gave last night. And he said, that's all right. At my age, it all sounds, it all sounds new in the first place. So he was awfully nice about that, uh, as about everything. And we miss him tonight. Uh, the theme this evening is art and the search for God. And that intersects with the book, The Loser Letters, in a couple of different ways. <clears throat> the book and now the play are literally about a protagonist uh, who is a searcher, as the saying goes, and who is searching, in this case, through art on the stage. And I'll say more about that in a minute. What I'd like to do is just tell you a little about the story of The Loser Letters, and then uh, why I felt compelled to write it, how it became a play, and the difference between books and plays, and what little I've learned about that. <coughs> um, and finally, about why this is the kind of thing that I think we need to do more of. So, The Loser Letters is a dark comedy. It is epistolary. It consists of a series of letters written by the protagonist. She is a 20-something young woman, and she is a bubbly, excitable uh, young woman who talks about the things that young women talk about, often in what looks like random order. She is also writing from an institution somewhere, uh, which becomes part of the plot. And she's surrounded by odd characters, the meaning of whom doesn't become clear until the end. So why was she invented? Well, the idea for AF Christian was born 10 years ago. 10 years ago was when the new atheism was at its height. And you'll remember those books were writing the bestseller lists by uh, Richard Dawkins and the late Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, um, in France, Michel Onfray, and so many more. There was just a moment where these like-minded works all surged uh, into 
the commercial culture and then trickled down across the popular culture in ways that we are still living with. I think it's safe to argue that the new atheism set a new low bar for what could be said in public um, when it came to denigrating other people's beliefs, particularly their religious beliefs. And it's had a lot of other fallout too, particularly as it feeds into the new intolerance that we see around us in the public square. At the time, there were learned books being written in response to the new atheism. And the new atheism was being engaged by many people in many worthy efforts at the same level of abstraction that the new atheists uh, were operating on. What bothered me watching this debate was the feeling that there was something that wasn't being gotten at here. The experiential roots of belief and unbelief. That is, the ways in which how we live can swing us one way or another. None of that is to say that we don't use our reason to figure out the big questions in life. But it is to say that delusion and self-delusion are constants uh, in human beings. And that includes when it comes to hammering out these big questions. So I was thinking a little bit about C.S. Lewis at the time. Of course, the screw tape letters are also about human self-delusion in part. And it felt as if it was time to engage the debate with the new atheists from a completely different direction and to look at the life of a young woman, a kind of every girl, an every girl for the internet age, for the Facebook age it was then, now I would say the Instagram age, and to look at the question of theism and the attraction to atheism from the point of view of someone living very much in the present as a young woman, including very much in the world after the sexual revolution. So then came a great leap of faith. My friend Catherine Jean Lopez, who was then editor of National Review Online, offered to open uh, the website to serializing this thing. And the fact that the letters were not all written when she made that offer ended up putting pressure on both of us that we didn't anticipate. But the letters would go up, one every Friday at noon. And then came the fun part of life with the internet. And that was the interactive nature of it. So after each letter was posted, uh, readers would write in. Often lots of readers would write in and take issue with what was being said or complain about the plot line or uh, object to one formulation or another, or to say that they were rooting for AF Christian. Uh, or in the, the favorite letter I ever got actually uh, was from someone who around letter eight announced that he didn't think that AF Christian should be the one in the institution. <laughs> so I don't want to give away uh, much more about the story, of course, because that's what we hope will keep people engaged uh, for the purposes of the stage play. Um, but I do want to say that in one of these letters, by way of example, she addresses the new atheists and says, look, guys, here's one argument that you can't make in favor of atheism, and that is the aesthetic argument. 
You cannot say that godlessness has produced great art, because it hasn't. Quite the opposite in some cases, and she has a, a good romp through a lot of uh, modern and modernist architecture and painting and music. And she also then goes on quite a tear about, uh, the, about Gothic architecture and uh, Palestrina and uh, other kinds of art that was only created in the name of God, or to be fair to some of the pagans, the gods. But she makes uh, the case that great art cannot be disentangled from theism of some kind, um, which I happen to think personally is one of the strongest arguments in our corner, and the stage play will get into that one too. Uh, but that was the second way in which uh, the, the story of this play connects with the idea of finding God through art. So the, the, after it was serialized, um, the online novel uh, came to the attention of Father Joseph Fessio of Ignatius Press. And I think to the shock of a lot of people, Ignatius Press published the novel. Um, it was very offbeat for them. I'm very grateful to them for doing it. Uh, and again, it was done on the understanding that this was an attempt to deliver apologetics in a, a new form and to deliver it to the, in particular, generation of people who have been falling away from organized religion in record numbers, the millennials, aka the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, none of the above. So that was why Ignatius got behind it. From the very beginning, um, there was another unlikely uh, aspect to all this, which was Michael Novak, uh, who uh, was a booster of the book from early on, said, you know, this should be a stage play. Given the voice of that protagonist, it should be a play. And I, I kept thinking about this. I had no way of figuring out how to do this, never having written a play never having been on a stage since you know high school. Uh, but he planted that seed, and then something else unlikely happened, which is First Things Magazine hosted the playwright Jeffrey Fisk for a lecture in New York. Jeffrey had already come to my attention inadvertently because I saw that the screw tape letters, uh, I don't know how many of you have seen that long-running rendition on stage, uh, but I, I saw that the screw tape letters got something very unusual, which was um, uh, highly praising reviews on the front pages of both the art section of the Washington Post and the New York Times. So this was a play with religious content, obviously, that had been crafted in such a way that a secular audience could follow along and secular critics could acclaim it. Long before I met Jeffrey, I made a mental note that somebody had done something very unusual here. So when I saw that he was speaking in New York, I thought I'd stop and see my friends at First Things and hear his lecture. And at that point, I handed him a book and said, well, it's not C.S. Lewis, but it is an epistolary satire that's pro-religious, and you seem to know how to do that kind of thing. So what do you think? Um, well, he put up with this crazy lady just introducing herself and handing over a book. And then, little by little, we started talking by phone about what something like this might look like. And there were certain uh, dramatic similarities between trying to bring 
this kind of epistolary text that came from C.S. Lewis to life and this kind involving A.F. Christian. The main similarity being that when you have a protagonist who is reading letters aloud for the course of the book, that does a couple of things. One, it makes the voice of that protagonist exceptionally powerful because nothing is pushing back against it. Um, that was the lesson I took from Screwtape. But the other problem is that when you think about bringing that to life, you're talking about someone who's standing around, you know, in the case of A.F. Christian, doing this all the time. And so how can you offset that? Well, for Screwtape, Jeff had created for the script a character who was on stage all the time in motion, a kind of demi-assistant, uh, and who was helping with some of the action on stage, like taking letters from one place to the other and things like that. And that was a very inventive way of having action on stage that brought to life the dramatic tension of the story. So he has done a similar thing, but on a much bigger scale with this play, because he has involved an Olympic gymnast named Chelsea Memel, who is playing the character of the shadow and whose antics on stage are a reflection of the turmoil in the main character as she tells her story in the course of this short play. Um, <coughs> so it took three or four years um, from the time Jeff and I started talking until someone got us to focus and collaborate on the script. In fact, one of the first things he told me about theater was these things take forever. <laughs> um, and certainly in that collective enterprise, that's true. Uh, but once we had a script, things started falling into place. We have a managing director, Christopher White, who was the other person first brought in on the effort. And then we had uh, President John Garvey at Catholic University, once he knew there was a script, he invited us to stage it at Hartke Theater. Um, we had Jeff finding the Olympic gymnast and a lot of other really unlikely things. I mean, in retrospect, this looks like the most improbable project, um, especially for someone who's used to just being a writer, because when you're a writer, you sit in a corner and you write and you might get it all wrong, um, but it's all in your control, at least. I mean, the publishing of it is not, but the writing, at least you're in control of the writing. Nothing, <laughs> nothing like that is true of trying to work with a bunch of other people, especially people you don't know very well, to bring a common collective vision to life. Um, it's, it's risky, it's not well remunerated, I think it's safe to say. Um, but everybody who's part of the project at this point wants the same thing, which is to bring this countercultural story, this very unlikely character, A.F. Christian, to life in a way that does a couple of things. One, we hope to uh, punch back against the monolith that is secularist, progressively influenced theater. <clears throat> there's a lot of good theater out there. There's a lot of great stories everywhere. But if you look at the kind of story that makes the round of campuses these days, 
um, particularly, though not only secular campuses, <clears throat> it's all the same kind of things. It's all the set opinions that we are all familiar with. And there is very little variation on that theme. Um, from the Book of Mormon on Broadway down to uh, any number of feminist classics one could name that I'm not going to, but that uh, routinely tour college campuses in particular, and that by extension are rewarded in the arts world um, with prizes and fellowships and um, th invitations to stage things in certain places and you know all the things that make the arts go round. We're trying to do something super countercultural here, which is to get a story out there not only in religious circles, but a story that will resonate with secular audiences because after all, that's where AF Christian is coming from in the first place. So there's that. Um, and finally, I just want to say a few words and then open the floor to conversation about why we have put so much into this, all of us uh, who are doing this thing, um, and why it feels like just the start of something that we all should do more of. So author and editor Adam Bellow, um, who is a rare thing, he is a conservative in New York book publishing, wrote an essay a couple of years ago that I recommend to you. Uh, it's called Let Your Right Brain Roam Free, I think. Um, if you Google something like that, it will come up. And he put the essay uh, on National Review Online. And his argument was from the perspective of an editor in New York observing that traditionalists and conservatives and really everybody outside of secularist progressive circles had totally ceded, that is C-E-D-E-D, -E -E the popular culture. That people had just given up on creative work of all kinds, uh, poetry, uh, theater, short story writing, novel writing, and had put all of their efforts instead into attempts to influence the political culture, into um, think tanks, into position papers, um, into attempts to get into academia. Most of them failed too. Uh, and that he thought this was a mistake. He was arguing two years ago that he thought uh, this displacement of energy was going to hurt especially moral traditionalists in the long run. And his argument was that people needed to take risks again, get back into trying to influence the popular culture, and tell a story. So I thought that was a compelling essay and an accurate readout of where we are now in a way that I didn't understand two years ago, but that the process of trying to do something like this play has certainly taught us. Um, it is deeply countercultural to try and get in there. And just by way of one example, uh, Chris will know that we have worked tirelessly to get uh, some kind of traction outside religious circles. We're deeply grateful for all the help that we've gotten uh, for the play from friends and supporters at CIC and elsewhere and other friendly places. But if you are doing something that bears the religious label in any way, let alone staging at a Catholic university, um, 
you will find more uphill chugging, trying to bring it to the attention of secular readers, secular theater goers than, than any of us anticipated, which is not to say it can't be done. It's just to say that's one of the unexpected stumbling blocks. And again, the hope is that the show is the show and that it does what Jeff did with Screwtape, which is to make a secular audience look at this story. Uh, or you know, not drive them out the door in the first place with the fear that they're getting Christian theater. Um, so that's one note to report from what we're trying to do. And finally, I wanted to add that the other reason that we need to get better about telling stories in unorthodox places or places that have become unorthodox for the likes of us is that when we look at what's happening in the nonfiction part of the public square, we see that it is getting uh, harder and harder for Christians to get traction there, period. Um, Christianity is going from being considered de class A to being considered um, frank bigotry. And in the last book I wrote, It's Dangerous to Believe, I cite chapter and verse for many pages of stories that would have been unthinkable um, even 10 years ago. But again, I think the new atheism has done a lot to lower that bar and to make uh, a successful caricature of religious believers in the public mind. So the fact that it's getting harder to break through there makes it imperative, I think, not, not just a nice thing, not just a cool thing, not just something that would be good to try, but imperative that we find other places in which to get certain truths across and to defend beliefs in a robust way. Um, this is a mere fledgling attempt, but uh, it's the team's hope that it also gives heart to other people who may have wondered about that play, that television pilot they have in mind, that short story that they've been meaning to pitch somewhere, and that we not just think of Christianity and the arts as part of some bygone golden era, but as something that could be recreated for the future. Um, and so this is, at bottom, an optimistic project in that way. So thank you for listening, and please let's talk about it. Well, the, the story of the evolution of the project was so mesmerizing and so beautifully told that if it plays half as good, it'll be a great success, I think. Uh, but I'm curious, <clears throat> I know often the author of a work is, uh, you know, your own worth critic, and I'm curious, uh, how do you feel that it's turned out as a play? I mean, are you real happy with it, or do you have reservations? Could it be tweaked? I'm just curious what your uh, evaluation of the, where, the, where it is as a play now. No, and that's such a great question. As a play, we are relying on Jeffrey Fisk and his demonstrated magic. Jeffrey and I did collaborate on the script and on some of the creative details. Um, but I don't feel competent to judge a script just by reading it. We'll, we'll wait until it comes to life on stage and, and see. I'm sure we've all learned a lot from being part of this, and also, 
I would say this. The experience of going back through the loser letters, which the book, having gone through several iterations, first online, and then Ignatius Press, and all of the editing that goes along with that, I still can't open a page of it without thinking, oh, I wish I had said this <laughs> instead. <laughs> but I mean, writing is always like that. Um, here's a fun note for those who are uh, of the right generation. Um, so one of the things that's happened in the last six years alone since the book was written is that, of course, the slang has changed. There's a lot of slang in the book. And I, in defense of that slang, I think that was pitched, that was well pitched for when it was written. But part of what Jeff and I have had to do in conjunction with Chris and like Nick's and my kids and other people is to say, well, no, you know, you can't say this. You have to say that now. So, you know, remember we had a 15 minute talk about cray cray and whether that was okay. And swag, can we use swag? Well, swag can only be used ironically. Well, you know, but like, can't we use it in a way that people will understand who think that it's not ironic? I mean, it's all this kind of, um, to me, really interesting linguistic stuff that's part of the mix. Um, Mary how would you, how would you um, introduce the book or maybe going to the play um, to someone who, you know, I might encounter, you know, in my office, or I might, you know, say like, hey, there's this play I'm going to. I mean, what do you think would be a good way to sort of share that? This is message? something I learned. Yes, this is the elevator version, the version of, right, the two-sentence version of what you say to somebody. Uh, that It's a story of a young woman in rehab who's wrestling with big questions of whether God exists or not that we hope builds to a dynamite conclusion. <laughs> you, you leave out the we hopes part. I was intrigued in the, in the genesis of the book, how you, you said that you were kind of going back and forth on the internet as you submitted chapters. So were you like recrafting things from input on the internet, from the dialogue on the internet? No, it wasn't from the internet. It was. In those days, those were the old days <laughs> before Twitter, et cetera, National Review Online Writers yeah. had a special dedicated inbox that no one else could see but them. And so instead of a comments section, um, people would write emails to authors. So I would get scores of emails in between the installments. Um, and, you know, this is the usual sort of thing. Some of them were. Uh, helpful. Some of them were rants. Some of them did hit delete right away. Um, and, and then I got to incorporate some of this into the story as well. Um, so that's what I meant by interactive. Well, but I mean, I think it's intriguing. I've never heard of a book being created this way, you know? Um, well, uh, Catherine really? and I were trying to figure out whether we could think of anything analogous either. And yeah, I mean, it's yeah, I, I mean, I, it, it is unusual. <laughs> <laughs> It is unusual, and some of the readers were incredibly helpful. For example, yeah. they would catch, um, you know, that I, I had set something two months in the wrong direction. You know, they, they'd catch things like that, um, or find theological points. And some of them would write and say, "Well, was I being too, you know, too Roman Catholic in the sense of, you know, running the risk of alienating non-Roman Catholics?" and that was another thing that Jeff and I addressed, actually, because Jeff is a, an evangelical Protestant. 
So we have worked hard to come up with something that doesn't make any Christian feel like, you know, they're having a problem with it. Uh, so there's been a lot of interaction that has led to where we are now. I think you should use that as a pitch. I mean, that's rather novel and uh, I think quite, quite intriguing, the way this came about with this interaction going on. Well, trust me, we're, we'll get a story out of it somewhere. <laughs> right, Chris? <laughs> I, I was um, just very fascinated what you said about that um, religious need to move out of the arena of politics and into kind of more of an aesthetic arena to kind of exemplify the beauty within the religion. Um, but I feel a lot of times um, those artists may feel censored about what they're sharing, about not coming off too, um, you know, uh, feeling like they need to be limited themselves. Can you touch on that? Or do you, did you feel that way with writing this and adapting it to the stage? Yeah, here's a distinction if, if this answers. Um, you know, when you write a, a work of nonfiction, whatever it is, and you put it wherever you put it, <coughs> pretty much now you know that at least some people will agree with you, right? So if you write something for Commonweal and it's in, you know, their sort of bailiwick, you, you know that at least some readers are going to say, good, right? Whereas the experience of this fiction uh, was very much uh, more frightening is too strong a word, but the awareness of risk was intense because there was no guarantee that anybody was going to agree with the idea that you know this young woman in rehab had any right to be addressing either theists or atheists in this debate. So it's it's just a, a much bigger leap and then that that initial leap has also um, been added to by the leaps of faith that everybody else took as part of this collective project um, you know Catherine for putting it online and Ignatius Press for putting up with Ignatius Press readers saying what <laughs> and you know uh, then Jeff thinking he'd make a play out of this, and Chris, and uh, the Olympic gymnast, Chelsea Memel. This is a, a, an attempt for her to reincarnate herself, to use her gymnastic gifts on stage. Uh, Madeline Murphy, the young woman who's playing AF Christian, comes out of William and Mary, and this is uh, an extremely demanding role for anybody, but let, let alone someone who is actually the character's age. Unlike a lot of productions, we didn't have to play down. We didn't have to get somebody 10 years older. We're, you know, Jeff has cast someone who's actually the age of the protagonist. So all of these risks and leaps are being uh, taken in tandem. And uh, you know, we can only hope that somewhere this is reflected in the intensity of the play itself. And we're all grateful to each other. The production elements, uh, Irina? Oh, well, actually, you, you, you're, yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, oh, that's well, another example of someone taking a, a risk here, yeah, a so choreographer. In addition to Jeff, who is the, the director, the play is choreographed by uh, um, the director of Synetic Theater here in Washington. Uh, and she has 58 Helen Hayes uh, nominations more than anyone in any category, or actually combined. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, and so she is really doing some remarkable work here with this gymnast, but it's, it's a huge risk for her because you know, her work doesn't really uh, cross over into this realm. Uh, and so she's willing to attach her name to the project. So that's been a, a great gift as well.
Yeah, that is something brand new on both parts. This Olympic gymnast being choreographed by this by the area's premier choreographer. Well, please join me in thanking Mary this evening. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, everybody.